Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. We're on, we're in, we're off, and we're doing it. Welcome to this week's edition of uh, Five Star Family Fun Size Fun Club. My name is Sir Nicholas Helm, and this is my able. Um, like a, can you can you uh, like can a, you, a steed? Uh, 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 what do you call it? Like what? So what's one that puts somebody on a horse? What are they called? Uh, a, a jockey. Jockey. And I'm joined by my able jockey, Nathaniel Metcalf. Hello, Nat. Hello, how are you? I'm all right. You've had a haircut? Had a haircut. Uh, like, a, it's my first one since February. And, and? it's fine, but I, I got what, like, it's got to come out a bit. I've sort of put some brill cream on it to sort of hide it, but it's got odd bits that are a bit longer than other bits. And maybe that's fashion. I'm not sure. I can't. Grill cream? Grill cream? Uh, I've got a question for you, Nat. Are you my granddad? No, not that I know of. Okay, well, I'm looking for him, so uh, if if you do see him. um, What do you mean you've got, what do you mean bits are longer than others? No, it's just it's been cut, because you you wear a mask when you get it cut, and there's a bit where you have to sort of unloop your mask off your ears so they can cut, cut the sides and behind the ears and things. And I don't know if it's just because of that, that it's, you know, it's a bit half done, or whether it's a style, and it's like, maybe it's meant to look like this, I don't know. Not well, sure. I've, not had a, I've not had a haircut during lockdown, so I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> but it looks good. I saw a photo of you. You posted a picture of you in a bar. Or something, and you had short hair, and I thought, "Hey, Nat's hair looks good." And then, um, uh, and then I looked, and it was like from 2017 or something. I was just like, "Oh, well, that makes sense," because he hasn't had a haircut. And then, uh, can you hear me now? I can hear you anyway. Yeah, yeah. Could you hear me anyway? Right, I can hear myself now. I couldn't hear myself. It was really weird. Um, and then I saw uh, that. Yeah, it was from 2017. And now you've got, now when I log in today, you've got a haircut and it, yeah, proper dead cool. Okay, good. All pictures from the past, I always think, look better though, didn't they? Yeah, there. No, no. There was a big period in the 90s when I looked awful, absolutely atrocious, haunted by it. And I don't really think it's it's weird. I don't really think many photos from that period of my life exist. Whether that was because I didn't want... And these are, like, proper photos, of course, Nathaniel. These aren't, like, uh, on your on your LCD screens. Digital. But, but, but one and zeros. These are... These um, are, like, take some photos, wind them on, and then take them to Boots and wait a fortnight, and then you see what you look like, you know. Uh, you couldn't take a selfie to see what you look like. Well, yeah. you could, but uh, um, you'd have to... You tell, you tell have a long me I don't believe you. They do believe you, but they also think that you're shit. <laughs> Tell kids about it, and they're just like, oh, why did you do it like that? I mean, like, it's... I think the effort means that... Like, there really aren't that many photos of me in existence. I just find it, like... Certainly, like, there's whole periods of years where, for no reason, there'll be no... Like, because I, I never would have thought to take a photo or anything. Just, like, years and years of it. Yeah, but I regret that. 
I regret that. I've I've got like entire relationships that are undocumented because I just never took photos. Mm. And you go, oh, that's that's sort of um, that's sort of sad when you like look. But I think it's because there are lots of photos of me in existence where. Um, I've been on stage and there's been photography. You know, when we started out, people used to take photos of all every single gig that you did. Mm. And you'd have, like, photos of you on stage with a microphone in your hand and you go, look, I'm a proper comedian. People have taken photos of me doing my job. And you always look a lot funnier in that one snapshot than the, you actually were on that gig. Yeah, it's really you go, Often I see them for uh, stills of pictures where I know it was awful. And it almost, I can't even tell in my own eyes how bad it's going. You go, oh, yeah. I was pretending. Did a good job of pretending that was going better than it did. Yeah. And there's so many photos that were taken of me over the years when I was on stage that I never really took any, like, personal photos. And then... Um, and then and then you get to a point when, you know, years later, when you look back and you go, oh, I didn't actually take any of my own photos in the whole of 2007. Uh, and, and it's kind of like, oh, I wish I had sort of, like... Um, not just of myself, obviously, but like of just stuff that was happening around you, and it's kind of like, um, oh, and now I think um, I, I really like I really never saw. It's weird the evolution of social media. I was on MySpace, and it used to take me ages to. I had my own one as a comedian, and then I had uh, the night that I ran Night of the Dogs mm-hmm. on the Isle of Dogs. Is it Night at the Dogs or Night of the Dogs? Night at the Dogs, I think it's called. And um, and my MySpace thing was, like, you'd have to, like, get the coding for the image that you wanted in the background. And you'd have to get the coding for all of... Like, you'd have to translate pictures into code, and then you'd have to, like, upload the code, and like or, like, sound bites. That everything had to be put into code. And then you'd have to sort of like, and it would take ages, but it would like, I'd spend ages doing my MySpace. And then when Facebook came along, I was just like, why do you want to do Facebook? I mean, it's sort of like MySpace and you don't get to choose your background. And I like the background because MySpace is such a part of who I am and my personality. You can put all your personality on I mean, Facebook. It's kind of like, and then you kind of like get used to Facebook and you get Facebook. And then Twitter comes on and you go, Twitter, that's just like the status update of, what? It's the status update of Facebook. But it's like, it's shit, right? And then you get used to Twitter and then you don't go back to Facebook. And then Instagram comes on and you go, well, it's just pictures. What do you mean? And it's just like, well, it's like a tweet, only it's like a visual tweet, you know? It's just like, and, I, and people are trying to, like, go, you should do Instagram. For years, people are like, you should do Instagram. I said, like, no, I don't want to do Instagram. And then you do Instagram, and you go, why the fuck would anybody do Twitter? It's like the evolution of social media. And then it's like, and I love Instagram, and I take photos every day. And I always think, oh, that would be a good one for Instagram. And, um, and it's not so much kind of, like, navel-gazing, but it's just kind of like, I take... You know, I went to the Barbican the other day. Hello, Hayley Campbell. She hates the Barbican. And um, I went to the Barbican the other day, and um, uh, and I took like, all these photos, and they're, they're just sort of like arty photos. They're not even arty photos. They're just like pictures of architecture that I like. And I, I should put them up. Absolutely It's beautiful. I think it's absolutely incredible. I think I, I don't understand why they haven't filmed like a remake of Logan's Run there. 
where you just go, yes. It's they like retro. Like they actually look like they're from that sort of... It's almost like I feel like you could film things there set in any era of the past 50 years and it'd be a better kind of location to sort of demonstrate something from the 70s. 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. It just looks perfect. Yeah, but also 2070. Yeah. You know? Like, 1970s future. Like, you could film Total Recall there. Like, the the opening of Total Recall, the first hour of Total Recall, you could film entirely on the at the Barbican Centre. I just love it. I just think it's so um, retro and futuristic, and I, oh, I'd love it. Anyway, I went there with David Trent uh, on, on the day after my birthday and took photos and stuff. And... Um, yeah, it's just really cool. But, like, the thing about Instagram is it encourages, encouraged me to take more photos. And also, like, photos don't cost anything. Do you know what I mean? It's just sort of like just just um, uh, just data space. And um, I really, yeah, I really love taking photos. Anyway, so the, so the lesson there is take as many photos as you want. And um, I think... I think, yeah, you never regret it. Well, I mean, I regret some of the photos, but I was young and needed the money. But uh, but really, you don't regret taking photos. I very rarely day. post on Facebook at all now, but I do like the thing on it which has the, the bit that's like the sort of flashback bit that shows you a thing from another year. And yeah, no, but, that, but you've got to keep using yeah, Facebook. Yeah, no, you've got to keep using it, otherwise you'll just get these from this period of... Uh, pictures it's sending you back to. But no, in, in ten years' time, yeah, in ten years' time, you're not going to have anything from now. Yeah. So I should do more, but I do like seeing things from just little popping up. This was two years ago, was it? That's nice, and I remember that that afternoon or whatever. Quite like all that, but you know, I'm nostalgic for things more than I have any interest in updating people on what I'm doing right now. Oh well, no one's doing anything right now. Well, that's not true. People are, people are easing back, but like, oh god, never mind. Never mind. When are you going to put that picture up that's behind you? Which picture? John Carpenter picture. Oh, that's been sat on a chair, leaning against the wall for <laughs> what eight, eight weeks now. It's like all things, I've got to, you know, I've just got to do it. I've got lots of things that I need to put up and frame and do things. You know, I know that's you love that. I find it. I, do. I find it uh, um, a job, and it? it's a job of work. A job of work. Well, I've, I'm out of wall space now, so my real problem is kind of like I don't know where to put stuff. But you know, it's a slow project. Bit by bit, you put stuff up. Anyway, first rule of fan club is tell your friends about fan club. Second rule of fan club is please, for the love of God, tell your friends about fan club. Um, get this out of the way nice and early because we spent a good old hour on it last week. What did we do? So I, so I saw Rocky 3 and Rocky 4 this week. Oh, have they been putting them all back on? No, I'm just watching them. Oh, I see, okay. Not at the cinema. So I went, I went to see Rocky 1 at the cinema and then I saw Rocky 2 and then uh, on telly, uh, you know, downloaded it. And then... Um, this week I watched Rocky 3 and Rocky 4. Rocky 3, the one with Mr. T. Yes. Uh, I think, and I'm predicting this, 
it's my absolute least favourite of all of the Rockies. Okay. It's the one that really... I mean, okay, so Rocky won, standalone classic. If they didn't make any sequels to that, it wouldn't take anything away from it, right? Yes. Rocky 2, it's a good sequel. It's sort of a rehash of the original, but it kind of adds to it. Rocky 3 is just like, well, we can't rehash the original again. So now Rocky will be friends with Apollo Creed and um, Burgess Meredith is getting old, so we need to give him some tension. Right, OK. So Apollo Creed essentially becomes Burgess Meredith, right? Yeah. He becomes a trainer of Rocky. Um, and then Mr. T is absolutely... Like, no-one was... And introducing Mr. T. So he hadn't done the 18 by that point. Uh, and Mr. T is absolutely incredible in it. He's absolutely fucking terrifying. He's brilliant, right? He's, he's, he's brilliant. Um, and it's great as well, what you, what you notice going watching them all back-to-back, -back, is all the fighters have different fighting styles. So Mr. T, Clubberlang... He has very sort of like what he's very very powerful, but he has very broad. Um, he sort of like, he, Are they in boxing? He, oh, I don't know. I mean, I did. A, I don't know. But he like punches wide and he swings round, and so he's very powerful. But um, Rocky can kind of dodge him quite. What you notice in Rocky Two is that Rocky does very little in terms of protecting his own face. So that that Apollo Creed match at the end of Rocky Two, he's literally just constantly getting punched in the face over and over and over and over, and you're just there going like, just fucking block him, just <laughs> like put your fucking put your gloves up and fucking stop him from punching you in the face. And he does, and when you see Rocky Three, Clubber Lang is kind of like like swinging really wide, but it's kind of like a big tail because you can see the punch is coming from a mile off, and so Rocky is kind of like dodges. Like, he, when he does make impact, it's, like, really powerful and it knocks him, out, you know, it, like, really punches him hard. But um, but because the, the swings are so wide, it's easy to sort of, like, dodge. And so you go, oh, that's cool. But the film is kind of, like, um, it's weird because um, Rocky is sort of, like, wearing loads of suits and um, he seems to be, like, 25% more intelligent than he was in the last film. Um there's this bit when he sort of like just sort of like got some lad bants with Apollo Creed and you go, this actually feels more like it's Sylvester Stallone talking than Rocky. And it just, it, he's not humble anymore. And it's sort of like, and it's kind of like a snapshot of Stallone's life where he's kind of a bit more arrogant. But like Rocky 1 and Rocky 2 were 70s films, very much. I mean, even though it was like a feel-good, like, blockbuster but it was like a feel-good kind of like fantasy uh, fairy tale drama where it's got a happy ending it still feels like it was made in the same era as godfather french connection uh, even exorcist you know it's like a 70s movie it feels like a 70s movie right uh, so does the second one the third one sort of bridges that gap between 70s and 80s where it's just kind of like yeah, and I think Stallone sort of like loses a bit in that one, and I don't really enjoy it. And it it feels like it feels like a film in search for like a point to exist other than money. And then Rocky Four is the most eighties one. Like, there's no subplots in Rocky Four. Mm. It's literally very lean. It's but it's like an hour and twenty seven minutes. Uh, Apollo Creed gets 
killed, spoiler alert, 25 minutes into it. So you've only got an hour to do anything. And in that time, there's like the longest montage sequence. This is montage sequence is about seven minutes. Uh, and then there's sort of like another, that's the second montage. And then there's another montage sequence that's before that when he's driving in his car, which is about five minutes. So then you knock that off. It's sort of like you've only got like 45 minutes to tell any sort of story. Um, and there's like, there's nothing to it. I think it's incredible. Like, uh, so he uses split screen in the montage, in the uh, fight scenes, in the boxing match, there's like split screen and stuff. And you go like, wow, that's great. He hasn't used that in any of the other films. I think he's making some really sort of like interesting, uh, like um, music videos weren't that big during the first two. They were just coming into prominence during the third film. And then in the fourth film, MTV, 1985, music videos are everywhere. And, like, basically most of the film is one big music video. And um, it's... I just think that it's a completely different film to... When you're watching them in sequence, it's just a completely different film from those first two. The first two feel like, yeah, they're part of a, you know, a thing. The third one is like, meh. The fourth one... There's hardly any talking. There's hardly any dialogue. Uh, Paulie gets a robot. Yeah, that's the best bit. Robot girlfriend. I think it's brilliant. I mean, watching it last night, the, the, it's, it's, it's a whole... I mean, it, that's the only subplot in Rocky, is that Paulie gets... You know, Rocky buys Paulie a robot. But, like, um, uh, the first part of that story... It's a three-act three story, right? First act is that he gets a robot and it talks like, a, talks like a, a, a male robot. Second part of it is Paulie's reprogrammed it to talk like a woman, a sexy woman that gets some beer and, like, absolutely... Uh, and there's a bit when the robot sort of, like, glides off... And they all like watch the robot glide, and it sort of like does this hip, hip shimmy as it sort of like waggles off, and it's like it's a sexy robot. And then the third one is Paulie is uh, packing his car to go training with Rocky, and the robot comes out and starts nagging him, and Paulie's like, "Oh God, God, get away!" <laughs> and you go, they've told a story there in three scenes where Paulie gets a robot, uh, falls in love with the robot. And now he's married to a robot, and he doesn't want to—he doesn't want to be married to the robot anymore. Like, so I've, I've read that Stallone is going to cut all the robot stuff out of the director's cut, and I think it's a real shame because I don't think it's—I I also you forget 1985. If you're a millionaire, people bought robots like that. Hmm. You know, it's not that—it's not a—it's not that kind of far-fetched. B, the reason why the robots in it in the first place is because. Um, uh, one of Stone's kids um, had autism, and uh, the, a guy invented this robot to help kids with autism. And so Stallone, being a millionaire, bought a robot for his kid, and he was so impressed with it, and it made such a positive impact on him and his family's life that he wanted to showcase this invention in, in Rocky IV. So he wrote this robot in. And he did it to sort of, like, give the inventor some sort of, like, uh, like a shout-out. And now people watch it and they go, fucking robot! You go, there's nothing... I don't find it that fantastical. I think it's kind of, like... I think it's really sweet, and it's actually, got like, a really funny element of the film. It's a shame that they're going to lose it if, you know, if he does cut it out entirely. Do we know um, when that's coming, this re, re-editing or director's cut version of it by the director? <laughs> He's, he's, he's in a film at the moment 
called uh, Samaritan, which right. I guess is about basically. I don't know anything about it. I've seen one photo of Stallone with a grey beard wearing a hoodie. I assume that he is some sort of ex-special ops guy who is down on his luck and is homeless and someone uh, needs some help. Uh, I think someone is probably attacked in the street and he witnesses it and he comes and sorts them out and either... uh, this This is my prediction of what the film is. And either some sort of news channel captures it, and now they're looking for who's this strange uh, uh, Samaritan that's kind of like, or um, or somebody tracks him down and kind of like needs him, needs his help. I imagine that's kind of like the setup. I think that he's probably playing like a homeless guy who's got like a, a shady past who now is kind of like doing good. I think that that's what it's going to be about. But I don't know. You know, I thought escape. I, th- I thought escape plan was going to be basic and straightforward, and they just overcomplicated it and made it all science fiction. And you go, why'd you do that? It's Schwarzenegger and Stallone in the prison, isn't it? That's all it is. But they they overcomplicated it. Ah. Anyway, so um, yeah, Rocky Four is brilliant, and it's got loads of criticism. And we talked about it last week about like there is some over the top stuff. And they also got the guy from. They got the guy, um, 1985, Naked Gun was 88. But the guy that plays Gorbachev at the beginning of Naked Gun plays the Russian guy who basically is me, Gorbachev. He doesn't have, like, uh, the birthmark on his forehead, but he's basically, they've got the most Gorbachev-looking guy that they can to come along and watch. And then he does, like, the slow hand clap at the end when Rocky does his speech. And everyone's cheering, and then you've got the Russian dignitary stands up, and he just like goes, <laughs> and then he starts like joining in, and you go like, "This is a, that." It's a little bit cheesy, but um, and it doesn't feel like any of the other Rocky films. Well, and I, I think, think even Rocky. I, go on. I guess the, the, they have that thing, don't they? That the the villains in Rocky, I think people always talk about them being kind of over the top. The sort of opponents and sort of being almost like computer game supervillain types. But even Apollo Creed is kind of over the top. He's got that kind of Muhammad Ali, but almost like turned up to 11 kind of thing, isn't it? It's, they're all got that. And they, and they continue that even in, you know, um, even in, uh, what's it called? Balboa, Rocky Balboa. Is it mm. still, that still carries on throughout the Creed films as well. You do still have these kind of quite over-the-top, big-personality opponents. I don't think that was ever a problem with Rocky IV. I think people talk about it like, they just got sillier, didn't they? And you go, well, actually, I think that element of it's been fairly consistent. I don't think... Yeah, I think... I think he tries to, like... He tries to make it a little bit more grounded with Rocky Balboa because he gets... um, He gets an actual boxer in rather than an actor. Mm. Um, And I think it's... I think that's probably the weakest element of Rocky Balboa because that guy can't act. But, um... That's not his fault. He's a boxer. But Stallone was sort of like trying to ground it a bit. But I think when he makes Rocky V, um, they get John G. Avelston back to direct it, who, like, in between Rocky and Rocky V, directed Karate Kid, uh, which is basically Rocky for kids, isn't it? Yeah. And um, 
Uh, and so it's kind of like, so John G. Avildsen comes back, and I guess they're just trying to like ground it back in reality, which they sort of do with Rocky Five. Rocky Four is sort of insane with her. I think it's just technically, it's a really, really well-directed film. Um, and there's just like, but but it loses all of kind of... I mean, there's no scenes where... There's no, there's no really long scenes where people sit down and just chat. It's literally, there's always something happening. And there's always kind of like... There's never like a moment where they're like sat down just enjoying them, enjoying their lives. It's always kind of like a moment where it's kind of like, oh, you're gonna fight, are you, Rocky? Well, you know, you, you shouldn't fight. And he's like going, well, I want to fight. It's always about there's always like this this momentum to the film, and then by the time he goes to Russia to train, I mean, I'd say it's 20 minutes after Apollo Creed dies, so it's like f 45 minutes into the film, let's say. Like, there's nothing to it. Like, it's literally, there's no, there's hardly any plot. It's literally, his mate dies, and then he's, um, he, he's going to do a fight. That's it. That's the entire plot. But it's a really satisfying film. And Rocky Three, I don't, yeah, it, uh, doesn't, it's never done anything for me, but watching it back... Aside from Mr. T, it's kind of like this film that you've actually got to trudge through in order to get to the, the, the rest of it. But I, I'll be interested. I'm going to watch five and six next week and then Creed and Creed 2 again. So I'm like two a week. That's fine. I'll give you... I'll keep you updated, mate. Um, it's good. But, I, yeah. I, I watched them all not long ago. I, they, you know, they're fairly fresh in my head. I don't remember particularly disliking three, though. But, I, I, but again, I think I'm up with you. I think four is great. I think it's like... I think it's so well done. Yeah, like you say, it's very lean and does it. I think perhaps the the problem people always had with the fifth one is that it's it's such a build up, isn't it? Four feels almost like it really does feel like it's it's at its height there, and so it's only really got one way to go. You can't do it like unless you start fighting like you know they even make out in the fourth one that Dolph Lundgren's almost like a superhero. He's got this sort of incredible kind of... He can almost, like, bend iron and um, take yeah. all this pain and all this. He's kind of like... He's almost like super soldier, Russian super soldier or something. Yeah, but that's it, basically. He's almost like he's been genetically engineered. And then also, uh, Rocky is sort of like... Um, basically achieved superhero status at the end of Rocky IV. Um, and part of it is the character, what you do with the character. I, but I don't find it that far-fetched. I mean, it is far-fetched. I don't find it that far-fetched. Um, I just, yeah, I just think it's just a really... And it's brutal as well. I mean, Apollo getting beaten up at the beginning is kind of like... It's really... I mean, it's a PG. Mm. And you kind of like go, well, it should be at least be a 12 or a 15. Like, you know, he's like, this guy's getting his his face absolutely smashed in. It's and horrible I to watch. Watching it now, I still it still has a sort of feeling of dread about it, where he's got such kind of confidence going into it. That you like, I think watching it, knowing the outcome, you do kind of go, Ugh. like it works yeah, on yeah. that level, even that you you already know the outcome, but you do have yeah. that pitting your yeah, stuff. That... Oh god, this is all going to go wrong. And I think that's yeah. bizarre, you know. I think that that works well in like I, I think you mentioned it the other week, but this one of the things I watched this week was. Carlito's way and that idea that 
when it does start going wrong, it gives you that real kind of almost lump in the throat kind of dread feeling, which, which and, you know, all films have this, really, but very few achieve it, as well as films like Rocky IV or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, and also, when you're watching it, especially when you watch it after Rocky One, it's kind of like... But it's, again, it's like um, they took... Apollo's entrance from Rocky One, and then they've amped it up, and they've really nailed it, and they've gone. We'll get James Brown out as well, and it, it, his his costume is a lot better. He's like wearing an American Uncle Sam hat, but it's a better hat than the first one. The first one looked really cheap, and then they've like they've really nailed it. And um, but also Apollo's learned nothing. Like the character isn't, hasn't learned anything. You know, he's kind of like. Um, He's, he's gone for all like the bells and whistles and everything, and uh, and you go, well, don't you remember that's what kind of undid you when when you when you fought when you fought wrong? It's kind of ah, I just think they're great, but like that sense of dread is kind of like um, I started watching uh, Black Adder. Okay, so what I have been watching is I've been watching um, the show House. Starring Hugh Laurie. I've never seen it before. Neither have I. My, my entire life. Well, maybe we should... It's half past. Maybe we should play a song and then we'll get into that. Okay, let's do it. All right, let's play the song. This is Alice Cooper. Nick Helm and the Daniel Metcalf Fan Club on Foo Bar Radio. And we're back! <laughs> we're back, baby! Um, so, uh, love's a loaded gun, and it shoots to kill. Bam, 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 I pull my trigger. So, um, what were we talking about? We were talking about uh, the, the feeling of dread, right? So I watched Blackadder, but the reason I watched Blackadder was because... Well, two things. I haven't asked you what you've been watching, but I'm just going to plow on, I think. Plow on. Yeah. Um, so I watched... Uh, I've been watching The Haunting of Bly Manor. I have seen some of that. I've started watching it, essentially. I've seen that, that three of them. Now, I could say I was uh, uh, a little bit intoxicated when I watched the first four episodes. I watched four episodes in one go, I think. Mm -hmm. um, uh, well, anyway, so I was... <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I don't do drugs. But, um, yes. Um, <laughs> so I was... I watched the first four episodes when I was a little bit... Um, out of it, and I was convinced that. So I really like the Haunting of Hill House. I thought it was great, right up until the last episode, where you know, like, as Hayley Campbell says, she's getting a lot of uh, shout-outs this week. Um, uh, they shout the bed in the last episode, and you go, yeah, sure, that's fair enough. I, I did also find it weird that Henry Thomas was playing the young dad. So what? So how old was he when he made ET? So he was about ten. So he's like eleven, I guess. Yeah. Ten, 10 years older than us, so he's like 50 now, mm -hmm. right? And how old is Timothy Hutton? Mm. 
Like, you can't be that much older. No. So when when was ordin- was it ordinary people that Robert Redford made? Yes. And Timothy Hutton got an Oscar or Oscar nominated for that. Yeah. And so when was that made? Like nineteen eighty five, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Timothy Hutton was playing a teenager. Like Timothy Hutton, basically, it's the same age, isn't he? Like, let's just say he's ten years older than. Um, Apparently, he is sixty. Says Natalie. So he's ten years older than Henry Thomas, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that Henry Thomas is playing the young dad and then Timothy Hutton is playing the old dad—it's like there's ten-year age gap. That's not enough. Just age Henry Thomas up, or youth. Timothy Hutton down. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, why have you got two separate... It was confusing, because you've got two separate actors, but they're basically within the same age bracket. There's not enough of a... It's not like um, Sean Connery, seven years older than um, Harrison Ford, but looking like... Yeah, absolutely, he looks like Harrison Ford's dad. Absolutely, he could be Harrison Ford's dad. Timothy Hutton looks like the same age bracket as Henry Thomas, so you've got these two... Uh, that was like my big thing about it, but... I really enjoyed Haunting of Hell House. So I didn't even know that Bly Manor was out, and I started watching it, and I was absolutely... um, Well, when it started, I was just like, well, they're doing a thing, aren't they? I like Henry Thomas in this as well. And anyway, so I posted a picture on Instagram yesterday of Henry Thomas, and I said, like, people are literally losing their minds, going, oh, my God, it's the kid out of E.T., and he's all grown up. And I think it's sort of like, you know, yeah, he's done loads of stuff. Like, he's, like, consistently worked from E.T. onwards, you know. Um, my friend and yours, uh, Rachel, pointed out that he played young Norman Bates in Psycho 4. Uh, mm-hmm. But he was also, he was, like, Brad Pitt's brother in Legends of the Fall. He, you know, he's, sort of like, he's done stuff. And then he was also in The Haunting of Hill House, right? So everyone's, like, going, oh, my God, it's the kid from E.T. It's just like, you're only just realising that. I mean, you know, he's been around. Um, so I posted, I said... I can't believe that um, the guy out of Bly House was that one out of E.T. And then I posted a picture of him and E.T. Like, the joke was, E.T. has grown up to be Henry Thomas, right? And people are, like, getting at me going, like, oh, it's weird, isn't it, how people grow up? And, uh, oh, it's weird that people... people and you're like, no, 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 no. I'm taking the piss out of... It's the internet, though, isn't it? It's the internet, Nick. You can't... People are fucking idiots. But if everyone on the internet listens to this show, I can put you all fucking right. You're all fucking... Don't you fucking think for a second that I don't already know it, all right? I'm the fucking king of the fucking nerds. I know fucking everything. That is right? always a problem. I don't know. I'm not... I tend not to be proud of myself, but you do often get people saying to me, oh, do you know this? And it always feels like the rudest thing to reply and go, yeah. Because you always find it like you want to go, no, I do. I mean, I'm not proud of myself, but I do know. I do know. I know. You've got to tell me about it. I know. That's my curve. I thought Henry Thomas was great in Hill House, and it was really nice to see him do stuff. I haven't seen Hill House, but I I watched The Blind Manor, or I started watching it, because I like The Innocence, and it's based on the same book. Um, What, Turn, Turn of the Screw? Turn of the Screw. Is that The Innocence? Yeah. Have you seen The Innocence? Is that its, is that its alternative, alternate title? No, the, book, the book's called Turn of the Screw, and The Innocence is just like a 60s film adaptation of it. Oh, right. I've never seen that. I've read the book, half the book. 
I've read half the book. The, the film um, is brilliant, I think, and it's terrifying. And that's the first thing I noticed about this, is it's not... It's almost like it's scary. not doing anything scary or spooky, even. The book is... A, well, the book is a novella. Right. Uh, it's described as a novella. So to sort of stretch it over nine hours is ridiculous, right? And it's, the film is like, you know, it's a 90-minute film that's... Yeah, you can do it in... You can do it in 90 minutes. What I imagine is he would have written his treatment where he had to, like, pitch the first one. And he goes, right, so um, Shirley Jackson wrote Haunting a Hill House. If Ah, oh, guys, guys, if, if you, especially this time of year, just read some Shirley Jackson. She's absolutely incredible. She wasn't really appreciated within her own lifetime. Um, uh, I think she became, like, an alcoholic and drank herself to death and... Uh, she started out right. She's got this. Um, she's got this really amazing short story called The Lottery, which is just fucking. It's dark and fucking great. Um, uh, but yeah, just just read some Shirley Jackson. She's she's incredible. She so she wrote The Haunting of Hill House, which they um, adapt, well, loosely adapted. It was a loose adaptation. Um, and then I imagine that he went, right, we're going to do this. And then they were like, well, what if it's a big success? What are you going to do for your sequels? And he'd have gone, well, we'll just do some other haunted house stories, like Turn of the Screw and whatever, right? And then, I mean, he directed, he wrote and directed Doctor Sleep, right? Yeah. So not only did he write The Haunting of Hill House and direct it last time, but in the space between that series and this series, he's written and directed Doctor Sleep. And then he's written a nine-hour adaptation of The Turn of the Screw, which basically can't stretch that long. No. Um, so it feels like it's... I think the script is awful. Um, I, I, right, but... So remember those, like, Sunday film specials that they used to do? Were they called that? They're, they're pretty they're like, an hour long. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Children's Film Foundation. Children's Film Foundation, that's right. And BFI also sell kind of like old 70s sort of like TV movies, which are like, they're always got like, oh, it's this modern day kid that goes to a mansion and makes friends with a Victorian ghost, you know, <laughs> those sorts of things. The acting is really always sort of like bad, but um, they're very comforting. So while I was stoned and I was watching Bly Manor, um, I was... I was absolutely convinced for the first three hours that they're doing a thing. They're doing a thing. They're all... I, I think, right... I've, I, I mean, I've got thoughts about this. Henry Thomas's performance is getting a lot of flack. They're, like, going, oh, he's just... I think he's doing, like, a very... He's obviously, he studied Prince Charles, right? He's doing, like, a Prince Charles kind of thing. But um, he isn't just an American actor. I find it weird that Carla... What's... What's... I know oh, what's, what's her name? Alagino? Yeah, I never know how to say her surname. I'm I find sure it really, I find it really weird that she's basically bookending the, the story. Um, she's doing like the whole, the whole setup of the series, nine hours of it, is that she's at a wedding and she goes, "Oh, let me tell you a story," and they're like, "I'll oh, go on." And she goes, "It's really long," and they're like, "That's fine." And then for nine hours, nine hours. <laughs> You go like no one, no matter how polite you are, at a fucking wedding is going to sit around for nine hours. Listen, and also, so the bride's I, probably I, going. To be honest, it's sort of, sort of my day, really, Carla. It's my day, really. You've kind of like, yeah, um, a bit selfish. 
Um, but so, but, and I really like the fact that because it, it's an anthology, they've kind of like bought some cast members. The girl that basically played the ghost in the last series is the main character in this series, and you're kind of like go, oh, that's great, right? So they've given her more to do, and I like the returning cast element. So I get why Henry Thomas is in it, and I get why Carla is in it, right? But the fact is that she's only bookending this story to sort of like a tip of the hat to the last series. So she's narrating the whole thing. But she's narrating it in this sort of like RP English accent, which occasionally drifts into North. Yes. And it's just kind of like, it's just bonkers because she's not in it. She's narrating it. It's just like, why wouldn't you just get a Northern? If you want it to be Northern, why wouldn't you just get a North? She's, she's like... She's American, right? She's sort of like it's kind of like I, I, I give her another part just to put, just to give her something else to do if you want to. Uh, but this is part of what I find confusing about it. But I think you've answered a lot of my questions. That I was trying to work out why the people have been cast. So I guess that's what they've done. So it's sort of a sequel to the Warner of Hill House. They've used a lot of the same cast to have some sort of continuity between the two series, right? Well, yeah. So Hill House, it's an anthology series, right? Where they're going to basically, if they if they make another one, they'll find another classic novel that's set that's got a haunted house in it, and they'll adapt that. And so they're really loose adaptations, obviously. I mean, it's like I think I was three episodes in before I went like, "This is turn of the screw," right? And then I looked it up, and I was like, "Yeah, I did think I heard that, but um, yeah, it was kind of like I I don't know." I anyway, I was watching it and I was just thinking they're doing a thing, right? They are deliberately because the original, because the first series is really well acted, really well paced, really well put together. It's American. I can't work out whether the acting is bad because they're British and uh, we don't notice it. If they were American doing the same level of acting, we wouldn't notice it because they're American, mm-hmm. you know. But because they're British, it's easier to go, oh, fucking hell. They're more jarring for us, I think. They're British for an American audience as well. So it's kind of like the accents are, oh, I'm Northern, but you can understand every word that I'm saying. Mm. You know, it's kind of like the most generic sort of accent. But I think some of the acting is so bad. Like, the kids are awful, and I don't want to pick on kids, but, like, the kids are sort of like... The girl is sort of like blinks, like it's just constantly sort of like she's got all these like um, uh, facial tics um, due to the fact that she's a kid and she's sort of like she's just basically going through her lines rather than she's constant. I don't know. It's like like the, there were ki- there were child actors in The Haunting of Hill House and they were excellent, and then you've got the kids and they're just like they're awful and you're kind of like okay, and I just thought that. Because Haunting of Hell House was kind of like this American gothic horror story, that what they've done now is they've gone, right, this is set in the 80s, so this is a throwback to those 1980s, 70s uh, Sunday film specials from the British Children's Film Foundation. And I just thought, well, it's all deliberate. And then I, and then it got, like, halfway through the fourth episode, and I was just like, no, it's not, is it? It's just... There. It's just, it's just, it's, it's just I'm still enjoying it. I think that Henry Thomas's sort of Prince Charles thing, I think it's really interesting because he hasn't just done a British accent, which he could have easily done. Yeah. He's created a very specific character, which is sort of... Um, um, yeah, it's sort of like... 
well, he's sort of like arist British aristocracy. He's, so he's like, he's created a specific thing. And people are like, oh, well, we don't like it, and I don't like it. I think he's, I think he's done something that's really interesting. Also, Matt Holness, former fan club uh, member, Matt Holness, Garth Marenghi himself is in, is in it. He's got this absolutely, I mean, it's, it's weird because he wouldn't have been on the entire production. So he would have turned up, and his scenes are just far better than the rest of the series. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like he wasn't on set every day realising what a shit show it was, so when he turned up, he, like, really nailed it. And then... So his scenes, like, he has this amazing scene in, I think, episode six or seven, which... I think it's episode six, which is, like, a standout scene, and you just go, wow, he really... He's got, like, this monologue, and um, and he's he's really great in it. Um, but, like, it's... I, I, I'm enjoying it. I'm really enjoying it. It's not scary, and... Um, and I think the acting is... I thought it was deliberate. I thought it was... I was thought it was being really meta when it was trying to do the thing. And then I've realised that actually the acting just... It's weird. It's just really weird that it's that off the mark. There's, um, there's another film as well from the 70s that I quite like. It's a Michael Winner film uh, called The Nightcomers. And that's like a prequel to Turn of the Screw. And it's, right. it's Peter Quint and Mrs Jessel... Or Miss Jessel, it's it's their story, and it's sort of again played for this sort of almost real life horror of what an awful awful man he is, and that's yeah, that's Marlon Brando and Stephanie Beecham, I think. Michael Winner directed Marlon. Bra oh well, that's not actually that. Okay, yeah, sure, seventies, sure. It's worth. It's kind of that's worth checking out as well. But the innocence is brilliant, and in that, Peter Quint is Peter Wingard. It's very. Right. Um, and it's genuinely spooky and quite eerie what? all the way through as well. It works really well. Part of the thing about Turn of the Screw is that kind of like it's it's narrated from her point of view and you're never really sure what's what. Mm. And with this, they've kind of spelled everything out. Yeah. They've sort of like shown their hand quite early and then you're like, all right, OK. I think that the scene when um, she splits up with her uh, fiancé mm. is... Have you got there yet? No. Uh, it's, uh, I think that's great. I think there was, some, there was some really great moments in it. It's just, it's a bit... I think unless they pull something out there, it feels like they've made changes which I think kind of undermine the story. And unless they've got, like, a great alternative ending that's a bit different, that's a bit like, oh, OK, it feels like I don't know why you would have made those decisions. To, it's, uh, not, it's, not that, it's not that scary, but also the, the big card that they've got up their sleeve is that... Um, uh, is that oh um, well we do stuff like in the background and you know and you go yeah but you did all that in the haunting of Hell House and in actual fact I think that the the house that they set it in is so similar to the house from Hell House that you kind of like go yeah like it doesn't really feel like even though you're basing it on a different story it doesn't really feel like you're bringing that much new to the table it feels like you know. Um, it feels like you're doing the same thing again. Um, did you ever watch Moondial when you were growing up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was fucking, fucking scary. Was it BBC or ITV? BBC, yeah. It was fucking terrifying. I got it on, I got it, I re-bought it on DVD a few years ago and I re-watched it. It was just fucking, it was stuff of nightmares, Moondial. And I think that, 
that's really kind of like what I thought the tone that they were aiming for with this series was. Mm. And they've kind of like missed it by miles. It it's just feels not... like a great opportunity to do sort of English Gothic haunting house story. And it feels that almost, you, you can modernise it, but it's almost like you've also got rid of so many of the other elements that make the story work, I think. It's like, well, yeah, and, it works now. And they've set it in the 80s, but they're not really... I guess because of Stranger Things, they've already done that. So they're not really monopolising on the fact that it's the 80s. So I mm. thought, we well, could go the Stranger Things route and set it in the 80s. Um, but what, what I thought their stroke of genius was, was rather than set it in the 80s like they did with Stranger Things, they're basing it <clears throat> on those children's 1980s scary children's shows and they met, even down to the style of the acting, and then I realised that that's actually not what they're doing. It's just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, but Moondial, that was fucking terrifying. Um, uh, so, um, so yeah. So uh, I started watching House. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> and um, uh, and obviously, for years and years, Hugh Laurie's been on chat shows, and he's told that story about how uh, he auditioned for it, and they didn't even realise he wasn't American. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, his accent is so good. And I know really, like, clever people that say, oh, House is incredible. So I've watched, like, three seasons of House. Three seasons? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I think I started in season five, and I'm on season seven now. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. Why have you watched three seasons? It's just on in the background. <laughs> and I'm sort of obsessed with how much I hate it. I think yeah. it's awful. It's just, like, mind-blowingly awful. Like, the characters are... There's only one... They've only written one character, and they just distribute the lines out to all of the cast members. And the only thing that differentiates any of the characters is the person that's playing them, rather than how it's written. It's just, like, they're all the sassiest, smuggest character that... It's just awful. I've never seen and it. So, he, like, he's, he's basically Sherlock Holmes, isn't he? But he, he's a doctor. Yeah. It's, it's like that. I guess, I guess. I guess so. But, like, it's... I mean, it's the same episode every single week. It's exactly... We haven't got time to go into it. It's the same... But because... I just think it's awful. Um, and, but because of that, I went back and I watched uh, a bit of Fry and Laurie. Mm-hmm. I think, it, and then I've started watching Blackadder again. But Blackadder, I think Hugh Laurie is one of the funniest, especially uh, from a bit of Fry and Laurie. I just think that those two and they were they were incredible. That series is incredible. It's so funny. Stephen Fry tells a story. I think about at some point in House they were going to introduce House's brother or something. And then they said, who should we get to play it? And I think someone suggested, why don't we get Stephen Fry? And the producer apparently said, oh, we can't get Stephen Fry, he's English. And that was the whole thing of it, where it's like, all oh, right, again, it's another, uh, no one knows you, Laurie, is, uh, is English. Sure. But also he played basically that character in Guy Ritchie, Sherlock? Uh, yes, he did, yeah, yeah. So he's done that. But um, 
Oh, God. But anyway, so I just wanted to I just double-check, and I went back and I watched Friday Night Only in Black. He's incredible. Like, he's absolutely incredible. I don't get it. I don't get how they've managed to... I just think it's just... Anyway, and I, th I think it's sacrilegious. I don't think you're allowed to say anything negative about House, because it's so... I was just sort of like, hang on a minute. Have I been taking crazy pills? I find now that, you know, in the advent... And I find Netflix shows like this, too. But in the, since we started getting those HBO shows, when you kind of go back and watch things that aren't HBO, I find it all a bit like sort of network American television always feels very kind of staid and formulaic and a bit kind of cheap in the way that sort of that more expensive stuff doesn't. I have that problem with Netflix stuff as well. That Netflix, even though everyone sort of seems to only watch Netflix... I find their kind of productions always really lacking and don't do anything for me. It feels Netflix. I mean, there was that um, there was that Will Ferrell film Eurovision. Oh yeah, is that good? I mean, I didn't enjoy it, but um, I didn't get all the way through it. But um, I know um, people that watched it three times in one weekend because they loved it. So I guess much. you could do a film like that because it's not a big budget movie, right? Kind of just for, well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, just, they put quite a lot of special effects in there. It's not like, but I just didn't find. Uh, anyway, I, I, that's not the point. But my point was that when you compare that to Talladega Nights or even Anchorman, they feel like films. But then when you watch Eurovision, the film quality of it feels like, yeah, this is like for Netflix, right? Yeah, exactly. It, it, it feels like even when you're comparing. That a Will Ferrell film to other Will Ferrell films, the it doesn't look like a Will Ferrell film. It looks like a Netflix film. It's kind of it's it's weird. Uh, we haven't got loads of you a sinking feeling or a feeling of dread. How do you mean? Wasn't that how we got onto this talking about films that give you a feeling of dread? Yeah, sure. But um, so Blackadder, I when I watched Blackadder goes forth originally, we taped it off TV. And so I never knew which was the last episode because it was all out of sequence. So you have that overbearing, no, uh, foreboding absolutely. sense of dread that something awful is going to happen. Even with Blackout of the Third, you're kind of like all the way through it. You're going, he's going to die. Someone's going to die. And you never know. They always die at the end of every series. So, but you never know. Like, oh God, is this is this the one where they're going to? Especially with Blackout goes fourth. I mean, they're basically going to die in every single episode, and you're kind of like, going, oh, is this the one that they... And it's sort of, yeah, I just, as a child growing up, I just had this over, overbearing Thanks. sense of foreboding. Thanks. Just like Rocky IV. <laughs> That's fan club. That fan club. We brought it back. We brought it back. Should we do some fan okay. mail? We'll do some fan mail. Uh, are you ready, Brian? I'm all right, Cher. I'm ready. I'm ready as I'll ever be. Uh, oh, and ACTC has got a new single out this week, and... Uh, or last week, and it sounds exactly like every single ACDC song ever recorded in the history of time. Well, good for us. Fish on a dishy. Hi, Nick and Nat. How are you doing, boys? I literally saw The Matrix for the first time yesterday, and I was quite shocked. I thought it was known to be a cinema masterpiece, but I found some scenes quite silly. What do you think? Cheers, Emily. Well, that's almost like what we are just talking about with House and stuff. Um, I think it's been so parodied and copied that I think it's probably difficult to see it in the way it would have been perceived and I also think it's a film where it's I think The Matrix was great but I think The Matrix has lost points for me 
or like, given me no reason to watch it again because of its sequels. I find it's almost like ruined it for me. Whereas I think the original, The Matrix, was a great film, and now I have no real interest in seeing it again because I found the sequels so ropey. I think it was the last film I watched before I went to university. Or maybe that was The Mummy. Um, I never liked The Matrix. I never was that... Into, I, I've got weird taste, though. What I'm learning... I don't like House, and everyone likes House. And I never liked The Matrix, and everyone likes The Matrix. I've never seen either of the sequels all the way through in one sitting. I've probably watched... I've probably watched them... I don't know. I, I don't know the difference between the two sequels. But, um... Yeah, and it was never really... I love Keanu Reeves as well. It's probably my least favourite film of his. Just never got into it. Never liked it. Uh, I'm not better than anyone. I'm just, I've just got a different sensibility. So, Emily, yeah, I agree. I, 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 don't, think it's that, I don't think it's that great. Although, you know, obviously special effects... Are, yeah, but oh, I, don't, I don't give a fuck about The Matrix, to be honest. Um, yeah, n- yeah. And the sequels, yeah, absolutely. What's the point? And they're making another one, aren't they? Fuck off. Dear Nick and Matt, I don't know if I'm just bored or if this new normal is driving me crazy, but I've recently started appreciating reality TV shows. Is there any reality TV show that you like? Thanks, Charlie. I don't watch them. Do you know about you? I watch um, First Dates. That's reality TV, is it? Would you call that reality TV? Sure. Sort of. I quite like Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares, but I sort of also um, like it. I, yeah, I love... Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares USA. I think yeah. that that is that is that is top notch viewing. I also watched Don't Tell the Bride actually, because um, she's just always like going, "Wow, what a fucking cunt!" <laughs> Absolutely, like, oh, they've got like fifteen grand to spend on a wedding, and they go, "Like, well, this dress is a hundred quid, and then we're going to go on a fourteen grand stag do." It's like, wow. Like, such kinds. One woman got married on a fucking plane. He got everyone to the airport. They all had to get their passports. They all got on a plane. Um, and then they got married at the front of the plane, on the plane, and then they landed back down where they were. And they got... Uh, the party was in a shed that had, like, sand all over the floor and uh, plastic tables. And it was just like... It was just like... Everyone thought that they were going abroad. They didn't. They just did, like, a, a circuit around Manchester. Landed. And they got married at the front of the fucking plane. And um, no one could fucking see because they were in the fucking plane aisle. It was a tiny little easy jet kind of plane with like three seats that side, three seats that side. The father of the bride couldn't give his own fucking daughter away. He was sat right at the back. Like no one could fucking see the wedding. They got married at the back. It was just fucking shit. And you just like, you're a fucking cunt, mate. Like she only got married because the fucking cameras were there. You know, this is going to get annulled like as soon as the fucking crew go home. It's fucking, it was just, so I like watching Don't Tell the Bride. That's my thought on that. Um, and one more. Hello! Do you like any films that involve the seaside? I need some summer films to cheer me up, Tim. I mean, is this a late one? Why do you need a summer film to cheer you up? What's the film that's set at the seaside? Uh, I wish you were here. Punch and Judy Man. Punch uh, and Judy uh, Man. It's set at the end. It's set at the seaside. But they're quite depressing films, really. They're not... Uh, it's a funny film. Tony Hancock film. Uh, and it's from, he lives in Pelting Down on Sea. Carry on, girls. Brighton Rock, says Natalie. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, but yeah, they're not particularly cheery films, I would say. They're quite depressing films, really. What's the film, what's the film with, uh, what's the guy who's uh, at the, who's Dr. Octopus? What's his name? 
Um, oh yeah, uh, Alfred Molina. What's the one where he plays a Russian? Where he's a, like a Russian sailor that comes over to England. I don't know. Oh. Well, there's one where he plays a Russian sailor. It's not the set of the seaside, but when I said wish you were here, it made me think of that. So maybe, nah, I mean, I can't think of anything set at the beach. Oh, oh, Barton Fink. Doesn't he go to the beach in Barton Fink? Yeah, the Warriors. Not really. They go to Coney Island. <laughs> not really. Um, not really. Not really. But why not would you want to watch a film? Like, summer films aren't set at the seaside. Summer films are set in outer space and stuff. Hmm. You know, it's a Brezhnev is the Alpha Molina film. Never seen it. That's the one. Yeah, um, I think it came free with like a copy of like, the Evening Standard when you bought it. When you could buy the Evening Standard, it came in like a cardboard sleeve. And uh, my dad found it in a charity shop because someone had donated it to Oxfam. And then it ended up in France, and I watched... I don't know when I watched it, but, like, yeah. It's not very good, so I wouldn't bother watching that. Anyway. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. Um, Tim, sorry, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, so, so, Tim, uh, so it's time for Halloween. Uh, I'd start watching all of, like, your horror films now. Um, start with Halloween. Work backwards to... Uh, I'd, I'd probably watch Halloween and then I might follow it up with Halloween and then uh, just to round it all off, I'd watch Halloween. Three films in the same franchise, all called Halloween. Furious. Fucking, Furious. fucking idiots! You idiots! Absolutely. Look what you've done! And also, Look what you've in fact, it's in this. This one's in the same sequence. So if you're watching them in order, you'd have to watch Halloween, then Halloween. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Halloween is the direct sequel to Halloween. You go, you fucking what? Makes me absolutely furious, Nick. You fucking morons. And then what's the new one called? Halloween Kills. And it's just like, well, just give it... Right, our guest is in the waiting room. But fuck it, we'll ask him what he thinks about the state of the Halloween franchise. Uh, We're going to play a song, um, and then uh, we'll get our guest on. Right, brilliant. Great. I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Ubar Radio. Um, we are back. We're back after uh, the uh, song. Uh, my name is Nick. This is Nathaniel. And uh, we're back live. We're not live. We're pre-recorded in our studio. We're not. We're in separate living rooms. And we are now joined by uh, action director, stunt coordinator, and uh, stunt performer extraordinaire Clive Curtis. Hello, Clive. How are you doing? Hello, fellas. I'm fine, thank you. Um, uh, we have a mutual friend, uh, Kenny, my personal trainer. You, you know Kenny, don't you? Indeed, a wonderful mutual friend. He's a lovely guy, and uh, uh, he said that he was meeting you, and uh, basically it was just re- really excited, uh, really excited to yeah, really excited to meet you. Your list, uh, your basically your CV of stuff that you've been involved in, is uh, absolutely huge. I mean, uh, goes all the way back to um, the Spy Who Loved Me, the Wild Geese, American Werewolf in. I'm just sort of like skipping through it, but like Superman right. Two, American Werewolf in London, Superman Three, uh, Top Secret. Spies Like Us, 
uh, Batman, uh, which is kind of like uh, what, what I instantly recognise you from. Um, so, yeah, we're just really, sorry, just really excited to have you on the show. Um, well, thank so, you. Thanks, thanks for being here. Um, How did you get involved uh, in the business in the first place? Say again? How did you get involved in the stunt business in the first place? Oh, you know, it's, uh, it's a funny thing. A stunt is not something I knew about at all. I was actually thinking I wanted to model. I was a sportsman. And uh, obviously, I had the wrong bottle to body to become a model. <laughs> I was far too heavily built. And um, just to make a long story short, I was um, at my wrestling gym one night, and uh, my coach had told me about a wrestler, that free uh, uh, stunt man, a stunt coordinator, that frequented the place. And one night, whilst I was there, he came in, and as luck would have it, um, the following week, I should have been attended the English Championships. He came in, there was an introduction, and you know you sometimes meet people and you feel you've known each other all your life. Mm -hmm. This was it, simpatico. And my coach wasn't able to accompany me as my second and he volunteered, and he came along, and uh, after the match, he said to me, you ought to be a stuntman. We haven't got a black stuntman in Britain. <coughs> and I said, what's that? And he explained, and uh, we took it from there. And, uh, you know, his name's incidentally, sadly, he's passed away, but Jackie Cooper. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. Um, that does seem kind of extraordinary, really. So, what what year would this be? So, you were at the time you were uh, were you a weightlifter and a wrestler then? Yeah, yeah. I well, two forms of wrestling and uh, weightlifting, holding championships in all, and um, just not knowing really what I wanted to do. And in those days, as as, as an amateur. You really didn't. You could not accept any monies whatsoever. You know, I now see the sportsmen, they're sponsored with Mercedeses and all sorts of things. We couldn't do that. There I was, night after night, with my duffel bag on my shoulder, you know, standing in the rain at the bus stop. I, I, I must have been about 18 because I was still at college studying thinking I wanted to be an optician because my mother had always suffered from poor eyesight. And she said, that's a good trade because you can go anywhere in the world and do it. But I didn't like being cooped up in one place. What was the first film or production you worked on then in a stunt uh, capacity? The first, it was actually tele... No, actually, it was a commercial... It was a commercial for Nigeria, and we did that. It's a Guinness commercial. Do you know the Park Towers Hotel? In um, um, is it at the end of Kensington High Street? Okay, sure. Okay, the name may have changed, but that's where it was. And right. uh, it was a brilliant stroke of luck for me, actually, because I. 
you, what we had was a very sleek, uh, it was made for Nigeria, very sleek black guy in a white suit. I was a rebel. And he came out of the Mercedes car as they walked into this hotel. But I ran out as a thug and did a flying karate kick over the bonnet of the car, which missed him, <laughs> leaving him look as cool as ever. And, of course, I landed on the deck. And um, this was done several times. But what was good about this, after we saw the rushes, everything was fine, we thought, until they went away and scrutinized. There's a very thin airline going through the film. And because the car was green... They decided they they had to shoot it again, but with a red car. So you know, I was excited because obviously it was double bubble, <laughs> and I thought, well, I'll have some more of this. This is the game for me. <laughs> yeah. So that's but, um, it. So straight away, you've kind of got into this. Did you know anything about kind of karate kicking? Or do you have to know all these different disciplines of fight techniques and things before going in? Yes. At the time, obviously, I held three national championships and I did other sports. I was immersed in sports. But at that time, we hadn't structured the way we do now. Well, for a long time, there's been a structure now. In order to entertain anyone becoming a stunt person, they have to have six disciplines in as varied sports as possible. And that's basically not to say that they're a stunt person. I'm, I'm using the person to get out of the gender issue. Mm -hmm. That's just to say that person has the aptitude, the physicality, so that you're able to... The coordinator is then able to introduce whatever they require from them and for them to be able to do what is required under supervision. Yeah. Well, I know from, I know from uh, when I first met Kenny, um, he used to teach me uh, boxing, but he's not really a boxer. He just got to a certain level before because he wanted to be a stuntman, but he was doing right. swimming and diving. And I think when I first met him, we went trampolining, and he mm. kind of like, he got to sort of like a level of trampolining. And then the next thing you know, he's setting himself on fire. And you go, right. and you just see all these pictures of him like walking around, you know, burning. And it's just, sorry, it's just really cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, versatility is what's going to keep you working. Mm -hmm. But when you first had to jump over that car, like, mm -hmm. um, like this is right at the beginning of your career, were you sort of like uh, scared about hurting yourself? And did you kind of like, once you realised that was what you were going to do, um, I mean, did you realise that you were going to be a stuntman when you first started doing it? Or is it something that you... You got into as you were going, like you started training more and more. Because the no, idea of like well, no, being 
obviously physically adept more than that for that mm. sort of thing. It's now introduced to me. I know what's needed. So, yes, when, well, uh, when I fly over the bonnet of the car with a flying karate kick, we do have mats on the opposite side where I'm landing. But nonetheless, nonetheless, you still can come a cropper. You still have to know how to land. But, you know, at, at that level of competition, you know, you know, I, when I first, not when I first started wrestling, but when I obviously progressed into one of our trainings was we had to learn to break fall on concrete. What a break fall is, is when you literally flip over from standing onto your back and synchronizing that fall with the use of your hands to take the pressure, the flat palms and the, the forearms to take the pressure off of your back and obviously knowing how to keep your head off the floor as well. Right. So you've also, one of your main things is, is you are sort of on screen and playing a henchman in for your eyes only, and you've been in what looks about almost every James Bond film from the kind of mid to late 70s, right, in some capacity. But well, I did that, all you... the ones with Roger Moore. Wow. But then, you, but then you also went from like the main Bond franchise to doing Never Say Never Again with Sean Connery. That's correct. Now there was another good payday, and that's <laughs> because <laughs> that's because I had gone right through. I, I I became a fixture within, and thanks to the Broccoli family. I mean, they they obviously saw my talent, and they were fabulous. Um, and I got to know the family personally. So I was always there in some capacity. And we had basically ran the course of um, the, the Roger Moore bond. And uh, not long after, shortly after, Never Say Never came about. And of course, I was jumping ship from one to the other. <laughs> And so to be able to be in that position of being wanted was obviously, you know, goes without saying. It's not often that situation comes along. So when it does, you grab it with both hands. If you assume that everyone, and you say that kind of making the Bond films is a kind of, there's a sort of family element to it with the crew, right? So everyone comes back. Is that correct to say that you get a lot that of the same is... people coming back and again and again? Absolutely. The, the main core, not, not literally from the extended, but the main core of people, yeah. You know, and if you look down the call sheet of certain Bond films, you will see the names being repeated. It's rather like an army, you know. You're going on a mission. You've been on previous missions. It's been successful. So you again gather the same people. So in that case, was there ever any, there wasn't any bad blood coming back or was it, it wasn't seen as a bad thing for you to go and do um, an alternative James Bond movie for another studio? Or was that just, is it just the business and that's... No, not at all. Because at the same time, once I was available, available for both of them, you know, there would have been a problem. 
and I think that would have made it more stressful for me once I had um, started to work between the two, if when I was needed, I had to say to the other, um, you know, obligated over there, I can't come and see. But fortunately, that was never the case. So there's just never a clashing time. So I guess that's right, because it's uh, essentially you're freelance in between the time. Indeed. Yeah, so yeah. it's another movie. It wouldn't be seen as... Absolutely. Um, so, Clive, you've you've got one of the rare distinctions in movies, as more than anyone can say, you've had a fight with Batman. Well, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, um, do you know, I still get people writing to me today to say it's the best fight they ever saw, which is rather flattering. And it's almost you have the upper hand for most of it. Yeah, and it's something, you know, which wasn't actually long planned. It came about virtually overnight. And if you notice in that movie, uh, you know, usually if, we, if you're going to do something like that, participate on that scale, you would have established your character. So you would have seen him lurking in the background doing something. But I just sure. appeared. <laughs> and um, so that, and uh, ironically, I'd, um, before the film, I'd actually chased it as a coordinator myself with the then action director, uh, the camera, the, the fight director. He wasn't a fight director, he was a cameraman. And it didn't work. And so when it came time to get some really exciting stuff, Thanks to him, he shouted my name, and so I appeared there. And famously, that film, before before it came out, uh, Michael Keaton was probably better known for kind of more comic roles, um, and I guess he probably would have had to work out, but part of your job, I suppose, is to make actors look better on screen, right? So the fact that you is to make your, your, you've got the kind of physique and and you're able to throw punches and do all these different martial arts, different fighting disciplines. But your job, I guess, is to make the actor on screen uh, appear to be a match for you or a better match for you, right? Well, yes, indeed. But in fairness, we use the actors as much as one can, but uh, then he, he too does have a stunt double. And so the... The camaraderie, simpatico, the physicality, all of that comes about on the way his Dublin myself then works. When you get two people who are very adept at, the, at very high levels of their sports, what's wonderful about that, rather than going through long-winded routine where a fight can start to look like a dance... You don't need to do that. They can literally spar, and it works. So it becomes very realistic. Right, right. And what do you think now? I guess a good example would be someone like Tom Cruise now, who's who sort of his his almost uh, USP in the Mission Impossible films is that he does a great deal of his own stunts. Do you do? You, um, is that something you kind of have a lot of respect for? Do you feel it sort of? taking work away from people, or how do you feel about actors that want to do more and more? It's a, it's a tricky area. I mean, you know, there are some actors who are very capable, 
But that's not the point. The point is, you've got a crew of people, and this is one for the producer. And, um, you know, if suddenly something goes awry, you've got your whole crew having to stand down. You then have an enormous insurance issue. So it's not that, uh, yes, there are times naturally when it's not an actor's forte. So you really have to work hard to portray, portray them in a good light. But there are times when good sense has to prevail. I think when I'm um, watching, it's, it's something I think done a lot better now. But often when you watch older movies, you see like a stunt double who looks nothing like the... Uh, the sort of principal actor, and it stands out a mile. Is there anyone you've ever doubled for that at the point of doing it, you were like, I look absolutely nothing like him. This is going to, it's really going to show up. Yes, there was actually. I mean, the most, <laughs> excuse me, the most memorable case was, and it wasn't so much that we didn't look alike, there was a complexion difference. Mm. And I don't know if you uh, remember, well, actually, it's on Never Say Never Again. The actor, Bernie Casey, sadly, the late Bernie Casey, that played Felix Leiter. Now, I sat in the makeup chair for nearly three hours. And there is no, he was considerably lighter in complexion. But we're working in England. And there were clauses which has been established in America that you will not black up an actor uh, to, you know, play the take the part that I was doing. So it went in reverse. But there are ways you can also help that situation you know, by a silhouetted situation. Also, I was doing a lot of diving sequence. So, you know, camera-wise, we can manipulate the scene of me just going into the water, and many things can be done. But that, again, was because the various sequence lent itself to that. But there are situations that I could see. And at the time, I was the only one. And also, he was, uh, Bernie was about six foot four. Hmm. I'm six one, just a touch, maybe six one and a half. But normally, you, you, that's not considerably much, especially when you do not have, you do not have to establish actors within the same shot. You can have a person of five foot ten, five foot eight. As long as their physique is the same long as opposed to short legs for a man with long legs, you can do that. I suppose that's true because at the start you were the first uh, black British stuntman on Equities books, right? Quite so, possibly in Europe, actually. Quite possibly in Europe. So that would have meant that if ever you had to double for a black actor, you were you were the only person to go to. So it almost imagine that this would have happened far more frequently, you'd imagine, just because there wouldn't have been enough or there wouldn't have been that variety of sizes and physiques and shapes and stature and everything. No, and uh, but, but what one has to remember at that time... There wasn't a great deal of films being made in England 
with uh, that, that necessitated black actors. Oh. You know, they had a tiny part, maybe they'd come on to a line. And um, so, but when the Americans came over, so what, what, what I then did, I took it on myself because as I, to reiterate what we talked about, versatility is what keeps you working. I then in downtime, there was never any downtime because you would go much as Nick uh, as experienced with um, Kenny, constantly adding other sports. Because the last thing you'd want is for an actor to come across like uh, the pond and they say, oh, there's this black chap, he's a stuntman. And you say, ah, oh, I can't do that. So you're investing into a business. So even before you get the... So it's not something where, say, it would be like a, a motorcycle stunt or something and you didn't ride a motorcycle. You would almost have to preempt all these things by learning all these disciplines long before there was ever an offer on the table of a stunt involving a horse or a motorcycle or... Is that right? You have to sort of know these things going into it or you have to have such a wide kind of variety of... Well, well I wouldn't say... You know, you cannot become a specialist at everything. But, yes, I did. Um, I do not have a love for motorbikes, but I did learn to ride motorbikes. But, thankfully, there was never a time that I needed to do anything that was so expert. But, ironically, there was. I remember there's a chap I used to use when I became a coordinator who was a motorcycle chap, Stuart um, Clark, who was absolutely brilliant. And so, again, you can get around these things because I remember us doing a wonderful, he was a hitman, and it necessitated him to be in complete black leather and with a black helmet, with blacked out face. So no one knows, but he was so brilliant. We were actually in France and he was going up and down stairs and things. But so, you know, there are, there, there are always, we're creative people in the movie business. So, you know, one of the joys of being in films or anything like that People say to me, what's the most um, engaging time? And that's when you get a script through the door and you read it and you have to block it. You then have a meeting. And if you're, if you're um, lucky enough to keep that piece of action that so captivated you into the film, and then you work at bringing it to life, that that is magical. Mm. So, how much? Sorry, say how how much how much of what you do is um, you working it out and bringing it to uh, the director or to the production, and how much of it is uh, then basically telling you what they're trying to achieve? Is it very collaborative? It can be, and and it's wonderful you've said that because you have three scenarios. You have a scenario of it being very collaborative. You have a scenario of a director just not knowing what he wants because, you know, you are working from one word. You can see one word, riot, on a page, and suddenly this turns into 500 extras. <laughs> you can see that same word 
and you meet a director who has a completely different concept, and it's it's really his be his or her baby, and so one of our jobs also is that we really have to be almost psychologist because you are working with creative people who has really strong tempers sometimes <laughs> and you can be on a shoot for three four months and there has to be an equilibrium <laughs> you know we don't want to fight every day I was, was as Nick was saying earlier and you brought it up before that when people like us and me and Nick are both in our early 40s and we look at your um, your CV and it's just lots and lots, film after film of films we've grown up with. And to us, all these films have sort of taken on a kind of mythical, magical element because they're films we've seen again and again. And they're such huge films to us. Um, as someone who's involved in it, do you understand and appreciate that kind of magic, or are they very much like that was just work? Or do you do you, do you, do you get that? Do you kind of understand that um, how people feel about these films, or does it feel like that's a job? Well, in fairness, I think I was very fortunate, and I still consider myself fortunate because I see that as being a really golden. I mean, we all consider our period a golden age, but I truly believe that was a golden age. I've been very fortunate to work with people like Olivier at the end of his career, you know, and not just to have worked with them, but to have spent time talking with these people. Richard mm -hmm. Burton. Hardy Kruger, um, Richard Harris. Do you remember Wilfred Hyde White? Mm -hmm. You know, these, these people are giants. And, um, you know, Poitier, Belafonte. And it's... Um, you know, when you not only you're there and you you are there in those as equals, mm. sadly, we got into a situation in about the late 90s coming into the 2000s there where we suddenly saw the demigods, people who could not even give you a soliloquy they could only deliver a couple of lines to camera, but you were not supposed to look them in the eye. <laughs> and, mm. you know, it became a very unfortunate time. And when I think back, you know, when I did The Wild Geese, I'd never met Richard Burton. And there we were, sitting one evening under the African sky, talking as if we'd gone to school together. And I remember after the film, we came back to London, because this was all shot in South Africa. We came back to London, and um, we only did a couple of days at the studio. And one day I was walking through one of the London hotels, and I heard a voice hey, Clive, come over, come over. And it was Richard and his then-wife, Susie Hunt. And this is what you get. 
you have people that immediately, you know, they were genuine people. That's mm. not to say that I didn't meet the, you know, the odd individual that you would probably see walking through Regent Street and from a hundred yards you could know them, think, you could see them thinking, how am I going to get out of having to engage with him? <laughs> <laughs> but that's human nature. Oh, that's really interesting. So you think it's because you kind of think of like actors of that era and movie stars of that era almost seem much more legendary and untouchable than more recent people. To, to me anyway, it sort of feels like they're sort of slightly unknowable, and yet you'd find them to be much more personable. And um, is that right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's the old adage. You know, the the more in depth you are, you do not think of yourself. You think of yourself only as it's the canon. You know, the workload you have, and they also realize that it doesn't matter how good an actor you are, if you're not feeding back from someone else, it's not working. Wow. And, um, mm -hmm. But your first, your first credited role here is The Spy Who Loved Me, and then you, right. went, on to do the, then you went on to do The Wild Geese. So, um, so what was it like working with Roger Moore where he was... The, the the main guy James Bond and then when he's part of an ensemble in the Wild Geese, did you sort of like was that sort of like the same stunt team that went over from that production to the other production? There it's was just, a, pretty much the main core of the stunt team, but by then I mean I had not much to do with Roger on the Spy Who Loved Me. I saw him around, he was there, we're in proximity, but, um, you know, good morning, hello, that sort of thing. But then, of course, having, as you say, followed on, and we're now away on location, he now sees me as a person he's been seeing for the last three months. Mm -hmm. And when you're on location... And, and not just being on location, the nature of the film dictates sometimes how much time you may spend with that person or within their proximity. So if you're standing next to a person shoulder to shoulder, you know, you, you might nod, he might nod, might say something and you reply, and it goes off. But uh, there are a couple of actors, and they're actually big names, and I won't mention their names, <laughs> that um, literally we've spent time sitting next to each other. And if I'd said, hmm, they would have said, ah, and that would have been <laughs> it. <laughs> and you have to respect that headspace that they want. I suppose. I can understand it if it's for a performance or someone has something to do that's maybe quite emotional or something that they might want. But other than that, there's a just element to it where you just think, just a bit rude, really. Sure, surely everyone would prefer to have someone to chat to than to sit silently next to someone. Well, yeah, but, you know, it's human nature. I, I myself put it down to human nature that you, as we refer back to the beginning, you meet some people and immediately you feel you're simpatico with them. Mm -hmm. I, I remember, actually, I was on um, 
I do at Incheon, which was in South Korea. And um, I don't drink, I never have or smoke at all. So I don't know what certain alcohol tastes like. But nonetheless, I don't know if you remember the actor Ben Gazzara. He's an American actor. Mm -hmm. yep. He was on the film. And Ben Waugh came along. I was with some other stuntmen and a couple of actors. And I seem like the life and soul of the party. And as Ben came along, he said, I don't know what you're on, but I want some of that. <laughs> he naturally assumed that I was, I was legless. <laughs> but, but the mere fact that he engaged with me, it became a talking point for the rest of the movie. Whereas there was an actor there that, as a child, I grew up seeing this actor, and he became like a god. And the first meeting we had was not good. It was not good. That's all I'll say. <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever, does that ever get repaired or does that ruin those films for you later? If you try and watch that again, do you no, have this? This was never repaired. Right. Never repaired. It was very sad, actually, because I, I tell you how bad it was that we had an enormous sequence that took the amphibious vehicles had to do the literally the Incheon landing. So they went out to sea. It took half a day. We had five cameras on it to set this up. And as he came in, I was a very dear friend of mine. Actually, it was a double for Roger Moore, a dear, dear friend, Martin Grace, sadly no longer with us. And we were together. And as the, as the amphibious vehicle landed, there was supposed to come over the, it, it's like a 45-degree slope. And he lost his footing. And we tried to recover the situation. And he saw it was me from the corner of his eye, and he lashed out to say, get away from me, and fell on his ass. <laughs> <laughs> The shot was ruined. <laughs> now, I guess um, you mentioned earlier about it being a golden age, and you feel like it's a golden age. Do you think the sort of golden age of stunts is over now? Do you feel like you still get that? Do you feel like it's now CGI has replaced a lot of that? Or do you feel that there's still a lot of big stunts happening in sort of major movies? There are, there are clever things happening, but the, the, the sheer naked physicality of what is required, and I have to be careful because there are some, you know, we do say this, yes, it's gone out, but there are some movies suddenly will take you back to that demand. So I have to be fair to my young compatriots. But... Um, even back in those days, you know, what, what was really special is when um, it's to do the stunt that is seamless. Like, okay, there were not, there, there are some films, they're not major stunts, but 
you, people would go to the cinema and they'd say, where was the stunt there? And you'd have to point it out to them. Well, um, so what was the stunt work that you did on Four Weddings and a Funeral? You know when they were late in the van and the car, there's a little mini uh-huh. chasing right. down the motorway. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. And suddenly there was an emergency stop in an altercade between the two vehicles. Right. Now, yes, you see, you say, what was it? But if you have ordinary people doing that, it might not have gone so smoothly and marry into the film so the stunt does not become the subject. Right. So there's almost like a lot of invisible work happening that you can... Oh, absolutely. You know, for gratification, what I used to... uh, was when, and going back to seeing that one word, creating that stunt so smoothly, you then go to the cinema and you're sitting there and you see people in front of you go, your day's done, the job's done. What was the uh, what was the stunt work that you did on Superman three? Superman three, I'm relying on you to have known because I don't have it in front of me. But we went away to Calgary. They Superman always go to Calgary to do the wheat fields mm-hmm. because the massive wheat fields. Now, do you remember? Pamela Anderson, no, not Pamela Anderson. She's now... Um, Bill Pamela Connor. Stevenson. Pamela Stevenson. Now, do you remember as she walked in that rather fitted red dress mm-hmm. and there were cranes and people falling about, going off? It was, it was as she walked along, there was mayhem happening. Right. And then back in the studio, when we returned to England, we had other situation of people, Superman rescuing people out of windows of skyscrapers and so forth, and various blow-up sequences. And, yeah, I mean, those are obvious stunts because you're seeing bodies flying around, projecting... And they're more like like visual gags, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Um, to you about, um, I know you want to talk about some of the work you do uh, with Ellis Manor House. That's correct. One of <laughs> our most significant historic buildings in Christendom. And is that local to you? Is that local to Lincolnshire? Indeed, indeed, yeah. And what, what did you have to say about it? So you, you're sort of dedicated to preserving it. Is that, what was, what, what about the house is it? Or what, what's, why is it important to you? And why should, should, is it important to everyone else, or why should we? Well, know? it's not that it's important. It's not solely important to me. It. My late partner, Violet Hamilton, who was um, a photographic curator and an artist within her own right, we took this house on three and a half decades ago. Sadly for me, she's no longer. She passed away in 2014. But we had a wonderful life together. We traveled the world because she was an artist. Are you familiar with the um, female photographer, Julia Margaret Cameron? I'm not, I'm afraid, no. She was the first female photographer. We're talking the birth of photography. 
And um, she wrote a book on her. And um, my create, I learned an enormous amount from her, as we both did with each other. But she also worked for one of the producers of a Bond film, Michael Wilson, mm-hmm. who is an avid collector of photographs. And she helped to build that collection, which is a, one of the finest collections. And um, so we actually met in France on a view to a kill because she was there working with Michael, the producer. We met. She told me she had people in England. And after a few weeks, I said, well, look, I'm back to England now. If you're back there, and she was, and the rest is history. And so, um, you know, when you're young, you take on these old places, you literally, you know, try to make this habitable. There was no central heating. You're sleeping in sub-zero temperatures. I don't know if you know anything about diving, but in uh, uh, um, the dry suit, you have what's called a yogi bear, a fleece here beneath it to keep warm. And we'd acquired two of those, and we'd get up in the morning, have the hottest bath we could stand, and all these on, and set about the work not just inside, but outside. And obviously, we did the manual donkey work, and then we got the specialist in when funds allowed it, financial funds. And, you know, we did this, and the house actually is uh, known for the most important late medieval domestic wall paintings in the country. That's now been blown out the water because I have deciphered these not to be what they thought they were. Over a hundred years ago, they were decided, they were uh, found. Not much had gone on in the way of education. And now in about, excuse me, 1984 or thereabout, the renowned Courtauld Institute is as a section there who is responsible for wall paintings. And so when I last December last deciphered these, naturally they were my first port of call. I couldn't believe what I was getting, the feedback I was getting back. They were completely oblivious to what I was talking about. I've done an awful lot of research. This has taken over my life. You know, I, I've now created a, pro, a program called The Art of Recognition. And that is, if you cannot recognize a thing, then you can't realize anything from it. Now, we're all, well, I say we're all au fait, but for people in culture, with the, with the Italian Renaissance. But not many people are familiar with the Northern Renaissance. And they were running parallel. Obviously, it started in Italy first. We know that. 
But because we have a strong, you know, the Tudor period is the star of our historic show in England. But because this wool merchant, and we must never forget wool is what saved England. You know, this is why Lord Speaker sits on the wool sack still today in the House of Lords. Because Edward I realized what could be gained from the wool trade. And it was Edward III when he went to war with the French, who were the, considered the superpower of the day in Europe, they wanted in on the wool trade, so he partly went to war to save the trade as well. Now, this takes us to the Hundred Years' War. Now, to get a feeling of why this is so important, it would be like us, Britain. It was England then, but I use Britain, taking on America. And, you know, at the beginning of the Hundred Years' War, we had no navy, no royal navy, no navy whatsoever. So what happened was they, they um, commandeered the merchant ships, which are called cogs, and... Um, obviously adapted them to suit the cause, to get our longbowmen, who were so effective, incredibly effective. We were outnumbered sometimes three to one. That was the Battle of Sluice, by the way. We were sometimes outnumbered three to one, five to one. We were getting men out of prison to fight. And it's within the Hundred Years' War mainly at Hagincourt, that they said the age of chivalry died. Now, we have this canon of history, and we must remember that, and it goes right through our country, our line. Now, in the Second World War, that's a hell of a way through, and I hear people with their little bits of rhetoric about Churchill. But, you know, everything is connected. Now, in the Second World War, when we were at our lowest ebb, we really thought we were lo we, we'd lost it. Churchill went to Olivier and said, Make Henry V. Mm. Thus, St. Crispin's Day. And that, that was to bolster the nation's resolve. And what I'm trying to make people understand today is that the wool trade has no bad connotations. And this is something we are now, we now have a more diverse nation. And how are we, if we do not teach that positive of the past, how will we gather everyone together? Only a fool would wish to take a fragmented nation into battle. It's a platform where we can all, irrespective of your hue, religion, whatever, I need for every child born in this country to know they have a vested interest.
that we come together when we need to because on this land, I see Europe. Do you remember um, Mike Hall, Colonel Mike Hall? They used to call him Mad Mike Hall. He was in the Angolan War, and we had him with us in um, South Africa as our military advisor. And I and Martin, my dear friend, used to sit and talk with him because when they tried to court-martial Mike, he said, you can't touch me, I'm Irish. And he had an Irish passport, <laughs> so he feed off to South Africa, which is where he lived. And we met him out there. And, you know, one day we're talking with him, and we talked about um, Martin and I would wind him up in a sort of a way, like one morning we're driving to work. And we said, you know, Michael, we're out last night running. Those warthogs, would they be a threat? And he says, oh, I shouldn't worry about those. They can't run very fast. And the van we're in, as luck would have it, a couple of warthogs ran up along the side. You know the way that when vehicles and they run up and they're trying to find their way. We were topping 40 miles. <laughs> These warthogs were still by the wheel. So we then later on said to him about uh, the baboons. And he said, you know, when a baboon gets shot in the stomach, which they actually do, they disembowel themselves trying to get the bullet out. And, you know, that's what I feel is happening to Europe today. We are disemboweling ourselves rather than teaching us the history and the makeup of Europe, and we are leaving ourselves vulnerable. And I really, you know, this really troubles me. I really fear for our future generation. Uh, it's a negative note to end on, Clive, but I think we've basically run out of time. Oh, my <laughs> gosh, you're joking. Oh, my God. We've done an hour already. Uh, we've my talked God. to you all day about, we haven't even mentioned half the things you're involved in. But oh, my We've run out of time. We can't. Um, but thank you um, uh, for joining us. But you, it's and also you have, and I thank you. You have a petition to sign, don't you? So to find out more about what you've been talking about, uh, if you go to www.ellismanorhouse.com, uh, uh, there's uh, more information there and a petition to sign. Uh, yeah, we've run out of time. We don't even have time no. to play the game. Well, what you um, do, the petition has now sort of exceeded itself, but you'll see the little mites reciting the Betjeman poem. If you share and like, because I'm trying to get a documentary made on that poem, which I think will be wonderful. Okay, so share and like. Um, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. It's been amazing. Um, all right, well, we're at the end of the show. I don't know how to end it without the game. Um, all right, so at the end of this, today's show, uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we will uh, uh, talk to you next week.